Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of How to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and the novels Insatiable and Careering. The Radio 4 adaptation of Careering is available to listen to on BBC Sounds. If you'd like a signed copy of any of my books, UK listeners can order from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Also, I'll be at Henley Litfest on Friday the 7th of October, interviewing Sally Hughes about her new book, Everything is Washable. Tickets are on sale now. If you can't get to Henley, you can stream the event. Hope to see you there. Now, on to today's guest. We are thrilled to share a conversation with the brilliant writer Meg Mason, the author of Sorrow and Bliss, which is my favourite novel of 2021 and probably yours too. In this episode, Meg and I beseech you with all our hearts to run out and read Barbara Trepido immediately. We also talk about our complicated relationship with trigger warnings, but I should say this episode does contain spoilers for Brother of the More Famous Jack and Love in a Cold Climate, um, and we touch on parental bereavement, so please go carefully if that is a difficult subject for you. Listening to Meg talking about books is almost as wonderful as reading her books. Enjoy. So we've we're just coming out of a couple of years that I think have really, really changed readers and our relationship with books and reading, especially when it comes to fiction. Have you found solace in literature um, during a difficult time or have you found like I think lots of really sort of established readers that you've just wanted to read the news all the time instead? It's so interesting, isn't it? I think that for me, I was always completely devoted to fiction and then something and none of us could predict the way it was going to change what we wanted to read and I think it was really different for everybody but for me I found myself only able to read non-fiction and I always had in the past but but usually if it was a you know a very high profile book that sort of everyone was reading I didn't really go in search of it or it would be something really niche like as a journalist I would read you know Catherine Graham's biography about her time at the Washington Post something that was in line with my interests my pre-existing interests and then it all started and I just found myself wanting to read it was very specific non-fiction sort of history set in a time of previous upheaval and disaster that had sort of been solved and wasn't my problem so I went on this massive kind of Tudor history bender and I read all the Antonia Fraser kind of biographies of you know Mary Queen of Scots and Anne Boleyn and I'd never been drawn to that before but I sort of wanted to I think my brain was like I need to read something where everything was also terrible and it was a long time ago and it's terrible in a different way from where we are right now and could not read the news I sort of stuck at it for about six weeks you know when it all began and then 
was opting out of any WhatsApp thread or chat where you know news links were being shared. I just I just figured up I didn't need to know more than what you sort of absorb just by osmosis of being out on the street. So, but I would have thought I'd throw myself into fiction because that's kind of escapism usually, isn't it? But not this time. I'd love to hear what you found out about the cheaters and any any cheering facts about how things are a bit better now. Cheering facts, it's not the sort of stock in trade, but I was so astonished that the Mary Queen of Scots one will stay with me forever and it was the conditions of her imprisonment, which I couldn't believe and just the woman that she was and what she endured and how long she she lived and, and everything that she... Um, rose to in the way that she maintained her power as such as she could I just it was the most extraordinary thing I think I've ever read as a biography of one woman or human being in fact because I think that's incredible isn't it that when people write about those sort of circumstances of absolute sort of privation and what humans are incapable of sort of finding the fortitude to endure um, I've never been a person who's very good at say the sort of like Holocaust survivor memoirs which yeah. I know lots of people yes. are drawn to but I can yeah. see why well it's a challenge almost isn't it you sort of think well I'm complaining about the fact that I can't get any you know fresh rocket or spinach from the supermarket because it's all been cleaned out and then Mary Queen of Scots is living in a sort of um wooden extension to a tower on a Scottish island where it's minus five degrees for about nine months of the year and the floorboards have got enormous gaps in them so wind comes whistling up and she's you know being conspired against and she's got no you know sort of allies and her child's been taken away and turned against her and you just think my problems aren't so bad I think I can endure (laughs) the rocket famine of Sydney you know and is there rocket now (laughs) It's it plentiful, back? it's thick on the ground. It's, <laughs> yes, we've all, it's all come back to rights down there as well. I'm very relieved to hear that. <laughs> Can you remember the first book you really fell in love with, the first book that felt like it was for you? I can. And one is from very early in my life and one is in my teens. I wasn't a reader. I just was not a reader, even though I grew up in a really bookish household and my mother was always taking us to the library and she was always reading some, you know, furry library edition of a classic. Um, sort of my image of her in childhood is with a book. But I just didn't take to it. And I, I don't know why, because I've always been interested in story and I was always writing stories. But the one book that I remember really being so moved by and went back to over and over again was a picture book so no words called um sunshine by jan ormerod and i still buy it every time a friend has a baby that's you know all the godchildren have received it and it's a beautiful sort of illustrated it just tells the story through pictures of a little girl and her parents who've woken up late on a school morning and they're getting ready but it's this minutia of the domestic and now i look at it i can see what drew me to it is the tiny details of their life and you know the kettle and the toaster and what's on the floor and the pile of washing and the mother and father sort of you know you can you can see the dynamic between them and when I look at it now I'm like oh that's all my concerns in fiction you know according to google books I write domestic fiction which is a label I resented to begin with and now I've completely embraced it because I'm like actually domestic fiction is the only thing I want to read so it's funny that that's what I was drawn to and then through my teens didn't read and then 
moved to Australia. I grew up in New Zealand and I moved to Australia with my parents when I was at the very beginning of my last year at school, which is not a brilliant time to move, socially speaking. And I suddenly went from, you know, having a wonderful social life as a teenager to no social life whatsoever. And I read I started reading I stopped dodging the prescribed texts which I've always managed to do at school until then written all the essays without having actually read the books so I just read them and I think it was Emma that I read first and it was truly that moment of oh I see what everybody means that you can actually do this not because you know the teacher's forcing you to because I think it had humor in it which I wasn't expecting from classics because I was so ignorant and then from there that sort of led you know, via Jane Eyre, which again, who can't be moved by Jane Eyre. And suddenly, I guess only nine or 10 months later, I'd enrolled to do English at university. So it must have been quite a dramatic transformation. But then the wonderful thing about it was that I didn't have, everything was new. Everything was completely new. And I I wonder if you've read something as a 14-year-old and didn't quite understand it, you're not going to come to it fresh with, you know, as a 20-year-old, you've sort of got that existing thing. So in one way, that's brilliant because you're much better educated than I was. But at the same time, I got to come to everything as a complete new experience. And sort of once I discovered Evelyn Waugh, who led to Nancy Mitford, who led to, you know, Dodie Smith, then, of course, you're away. And that was was where I was. And that's where I've stayed, really. There is something astonishing, isn't there, about when you're not told what to notice and there's not, and you will pay special attention to symbolism on page 17, and you really respond in such a fresh way. Yeah. Um, I think it might be uh, Patricia Lockwood, um, who is you know scary smart and writes yeah. sort of brilliantly about you know Nabokov who I think is probably one of our smartest um living writers but she I think talks about how she didn't really do that in school so everything was super super new to her and again yeah. she had that that freshness of, of discovery and of exactly and it's interesting how you're you are led through you find you feel like you discovered it I still believe that I was sort of Nancy Mitford's original champion you know <laughs> that I found her first and discovered her as a talent for the ages um because it's so personal and and when no one's told you about it you've just you know you I might have read Vile Bodies and then thought oh you know you read a couple of letters from Evelyn Warren he's writing this to this person called Nancy Mitford and she sounds like a blast so then you find out that she's also a novelist and you really think you found it and it's so intimate you know that you came across this person and she's speaking to you and and also I can see in the the themes that they are all obviously comic novelists and that's sort of what I love so it's really interesting how discovery works I do always wish that there was sort of that an every novelist put in the back of their book a recommendation of what to read next mm. you know a text that they've adored or that's informed them because there's a little string isn't there there's knots in the string and you I want to be led by those authors I think because also discovery is the hardest part yes you know and especially when you've read something mm. brilliant like what an earth am I supposed to read next I, mean, I, I am strongly in favor of advocating that as let's enshrine let's, champ- let's make it our cause and obviously you know what I now have to ask you is what's in the back of sorrow and bliss what do you want us to go and read next well funnily enough there are books in the back of sorrow and bliss because I was quite um liberal with quoting from different books whether it was attributed in the text or not there's a line that the protagonist Martha when she makes a sort of decision to change her life at one point there's this fictional Instagram account author quote daily where she gets these little um, literary bombots and she comes across one that says I was done being hopeless and that was from Grief is a Thing with Feathers which I I just I talk about that book far too much but it's such a 
critical I mean for me a totally seminal volume because he tells the whole story of a marriage and death and children in I don't know 150 pages maybe and I think that's such a gift and it's vignettes and they're tragic and they're hilarious and they're true and they're domestic um, and there's all that love there and so that's you know that's in the book so that's Gosh. at the back because I've never read it because and I remember it in oh my book, goodness but... I want to pause the recording have you go away and read it and then come back and we pick it up from there there's only 150 pages I should manage it but I think just sort of from the title and the way people talk about it in quite a serious and high-minded way I've always thought oh no but it's oh, funny going to be hard. but now you saying yeah. it's funny I'm like yes yeah. yes yeah. please exactly it's funny and the these two aren't in the book but I would if we if we you know champion our cause and we get um, traction with publishers then I would always recommend Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal which is almost like the girl version of the boy version that's Greek you know grief is a thing that they're not related but they feel like companion volumes it's equally as slender and it's a whole story of a marriage but American in the same vignette sort of style and then I will talk about brother of the more famous Jack by Barbara Trapedo until my dying breath well, can we just please let's focus on Barbara for the rest Forever. of the podcast? Yes, this has now too. just become but the Barbara think, Appreciation Podcast. I think I read the Department of Speculation in lockdown, and I'm looking over at Producer Dale for corroboration because I read it at a very similar time to reading. Um, gosh, uh, Sheila Hetty, um, Motherhood, course, yeah, and they both had that sort of fragmented. Feel. Which I, well, I think that was a lot of what we could manage. I, I don't know where my sort of history, the, the Tudors, came into it, but. I think at the time we were so distracted and our concentration was split in a million directions mm. and we were finding, I mean, loads of people have said that they found concentrating really hard and the things they would usually be drawn to didn't work for them. There was something about that PC vignette style mm. that really suited it. You could kind of dip in, read one, it was 10 minutes, was creatively fulfilling and then you could go back and just stare at the wall for a bit longer contemplating what on earth was going to happen. And I think what I found hugely comforting about the Department of Speculations, you know, it is beautiful but it feels very sort of nourishing I didn't feel I felt like it was really pulling me in not pushing me away but also it was a book about someone who just keeps changing her mind at a time when it felt like everyone's like no this is what I think and I will think of ever and if you don't think this is wrong and it's it's contemporary but it just seems to have um it slightly precedes the age we're in right now I think it was maybe 2011 or 12 Mm. um so it's still really contemporary but I also think both of those books are a real challenge to writers that if they can tell whole stories in so few pages, should you need more than 150 to get the job done? You know, you really have to make sure you're not overstaying your welcome. And if they can do it, then you should be able to do it. One should be able to do it too. And yet my memories are the plot. I'm not sure I could entirely tell you about the plot other than it's sort of about their relationship and it, you know, it's ups and downs, but that just sensation of things like a, it's the a scratchy jacket or yes. feet where the toes have gone a little bit damp because you've walked in the snow. And exactly. Those feelings. And I remember the sort of observation she makes about, she's a mother of a young baby who's sort of struggling with that phase as everyone does. And eventually, you know, they're, they're sort of um, creatives and she's a writer and the fairly strapped for cash and she becomes friends with all the school mothers and she said there's a woman who has moved into this enormous town house and you know a brownstone in Brooklyn is always complaining now that whatever she wants is always on a different floor so she's always up and down the stairs and you know that's I just feel lots of people talk about being seen feeling seen Mm. by books and I haven't really felt that I'm more generally I just want to see a different life Mm. but that one I felt seen. I understand what people mean by that just because of that, because that was my experience of motherhood. And 
being more of a fringe observer to it despite having children feeling much more like I was outside looking in oh that's really interesting point I'm not a parent but I think maybe that's why I loved it so much because I you know often feel quite like it's some it's a world that sort of that frightens me you know my closest friends yeah are, you know a mother doesn't do it very well yeah. and, you know, my sisters and I'm an auntie but sort of to a kinship I have with other women who doesn't feel like an automatic or natural thing yeah maybe that's why I love exactly and the protagonist of that she's she embodies that ambivalence and the struggle and the fact that it isn't you know of course you love this child but you're you know and she's a writer as well so you sort of imagine I remember feeling with a baby at that age that I was lonely but I was never actually alone and it's a really strange feeling and you're happy and you've got this you know incredible thing that you wanted but it's terrifying and she sort of embodies all of that and but you know because I think motherhood the exploration of it in fiction just tips into cliche so quickly and these books that I really struggle with which are the sort of school gate catty mothers the competition and the you know I haven't met a mother who cares so much about her baking that she would smash it with a hammer slightly to make it look more authentic for the bake sale that's just not you know the competition and I've only met incredible women at the school gates and so you know but then we are all struggling and then you know I think it's I think there's more to be explored that feels more true about mm. motherhood than the way it's necessarily been captured overall. There's a book I read recently and loved, A Wahala by Nikki May, and that's about a group of friends. And I think only one of them has a child. And but you sort of the way that her friends react to her and her kid and some are sort of really tender and have a very sort of easy natural relationship and sort of a longing for yeah. kids and others are like I would not want that. But it's a real I thought in quite a kind of a a light and smart way it really explores the complexity of womanhood I was it maybe womanhood post sort of 30 35 and yeah. that point where we're not all doing the same thing together but it's yeah. done with a real kind of like a, a sense of humor yeah I did, and this is again why I adored sorrow and bliss so much that it sort of you know made me laugh and cry <laughs> as they say but there are so many books I think now there's a sense where to be taken seriously things have to be very very serious and yeah Sorrow and Bliss was just so when it wasn't breaking my heart it was so 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 funny oh my goodness that's so kind of you to say because I had to go through that whole exercise because I wanted to write literary fiction and I thought the same thing that it had to be incredibly bleak and incredibly sort of esoteric and and smart and then I wrote this manuscript that I tried to make all of those things Mm. and it was just so awful and threw it away and had to go through this sort of exercise of deciding that you know, it was through a sort of intervention that my publisher did on me where she said, just please stop straining against what comes naturally to mm. you. And, you know, I suppose it's the idea of voice, which I'd never quite understood. But I think in every part of life, not just in writing, we have a tendency to undervalue what comes naturally. Yes. We think, oh, it's, it should be harder. And it, it, that person is doing something that is impossible for me, so it must have more merit. And when I sort of began writing again after that um, implosion... I didn't have the energy to strive like that. I could only say it. And I'd sort of got to the point where I was like, I'll just say it as though I was talking. And I think that's what is so striking about the Max Porter book is when I first read it, it was so new and 
astonishing and I'd never read anything like it and I could not figure out how he had managed to manufacture it and then I saw him speaking at a writer's festival and I was like oh it's just how you talk that's just who you are and it's fiction but it contains that sort of essence and I think that was where I had to get to that I just had to say it as I would say it and so it has somehow that mingling of how utterly miserable you know I naturally am as a person with the attraction I have to the absurd and to watch what people do and sort of highlight the madness of it all before I forget because I'm thinking about someone else who does um serious humor so brilliantly he mentioned Barbara Trapido can we circle back to Barbara and stay there because I just don't understand why it's not the front page of every newspaper like read Barbara Trapido now Uh, because here they just reissued the anniversary edition exactly exactly and I think there's been quite a few extraordinary moments for me personally that have come out of Sorrow and Bliss and the audience that it's found but one of them was being allowed to endorse that novel and seeing, I mean, this sounds incredibly self-aggrandizing, but seeing my name on that book, because obviously my name's been written in that book. I was writing my name in what I read, but um, to have it on the outside was like, oh, this is unimaginable to me. But so I, I think you read something and you see whatever you see at the age you are. So I read that book maybe eight or nine years ago, thought it was just hilarious so how did you find it well so well, everybody comes to, to it I've never met someone who's read it and not loved it if you don't love it, it's because you've never heard of it and it's the world divides into those two camps for me because anyone who's read it is tends to be passionate about it and I don't know why it feels undiscovered because so many people have read it and it's you know it's in their top five of all time and it's it's a book that that if you say it and the person's read it, you both gasp with sort of this mutual, I understand you and you understand me because we both it, love that book. It's a secret handshake, isn't yeah. it? It is like being in Absolutely. the best club. Yes, and it was my publisher who who told me about it and she had discovered it sort of 18 as a brand new student studying theatre and, you know, so that would have been not, you know, maybe 30 years ago. And that spoke to her and she feels like it's her book. And then when I read it, it felt like my book. And I just think, and that it was such a lesson to me because when I read it the first time, I just thought it was thoroughly hilarious. And that was all it was, was just this incredible observational sort of comedy. And then I read it again, maybe six months ago and saw how dark it is and how many really contemporary issues are explored in it. Like there's toxic masculinity and there's consent and there's medical misogyny and she's it's just so prescient and it still feels so contemporary in its tone and in its language and who the characters are but what's incredible about it I've noticed even more this time is that you come away from it thinking it's a not it's not light but it's it's funny and it's absurd and it moves along a clip but there's a baby dies in it and she she dispenses with that in one line. She says, I went in to congratulate the baby for sleeping through the night and the baby was blue or something. That's a terrible paraphrase. But And then it moves on. And you think, how does she? How do you come out of that book thinking that it wasn't a tragedy about a, a baby who died? You know, that she can incorporate all of that and create something that, I don't know, I don't have words. It's just, can everybody just go and read it after this? I, mean, I think it's a universe I want to live in and I will never tire of reading that book. But I'm the same. I think I reread it a couple of years ago, maybe in lockdown. And I'd completely forgotten about that awful, you know, when she goes to Italy. With that the terrible... Awful, awful boyfriend. Yeah, and exactly. The fur coat and the way something quite sort of 
matter of fact and it's weird how it feels so fresh and so prescient and Mm. yet dated in a sense that not not dated dated but more maybe a kind of recent social historical fiction yeah like it's almost becoming a period piece but there's that nostalgia but it's similar to me it's definitely it pairs with the pursuit of love and love in a cold climate Mm. which obviously I'm equally obsessed with because you think about you know Linda and she's this wonderful joyful bon vivant and that is a tragically dark book you know the way it ends with and she did have another baby and it killed her you you know it's just so bleak the way that Linda's tragedy is sort of beautiful and noble because she died and it's like well it was very sad that she died but it could be worse she could have been a bolter (laughs) and just lived forever and kept chugging or had no money exactly I know it's it's extraordinary and I think when you think about those writers because I've always I had up until Sarumba struggled with the idea of I've got to keep the jokes out of it if I'm going to be taken seriously I've got to make sure it's not funny and somehow that must be easier than writing a terribly bleak book. If you look at what Nancy Mitford does and what Trapita does, I mean, mm. it's so difficult. It's a high wire act yeah. to not make a joke of the characters or a joke of the story whilst filling it with, for want of a better word, jokes. To be a big um, name, Droppy Dropperson, <laughs> I accidentally had lunch with Barbara Trapido quite recently. I don't want to talk to you anymore because I'm consumed <laughs> with jealousy. Well, she has been a guest on this podcast oh. and we've had the pleasure of being to her. I feel like we should like, run away and uh, yeah. be delighted to Get see you. Get on the train you. to Oxford I, right now and go and, yeah. Let's go and see her. Um, there was meant to be a lunch in her honour to celebrate the new book. I got the date wrong. I was a month early and so was she. So it was the two of you. Oh my goodness, that's wonderful. How extraordinary for you. How lucky. I was so, so lucky. And she did tell me, because I'd also just reread Noah's Ark. I think it's Noah's mm-hmm. Ark. The one after with um, Alison. Paul sort of put upon Alison in her kind of domestic setting. And um, Barbara Trapido told me that that's kind of the book she feels the least comfortable with because oh, she was under some pressure to follow up yeah. by the more famous Jack. And she feels like it's perhaps the most autobiographical in that how she felt as a young parent surrounded yeah. by children who you know was sort of struggling to have boundaries and say no and was an easy yeah. and, and it's so funny in that book the way that everyone kind of on the road and in the area is just like Alison will do it Alison will oh my it. goodness I feel like I haven't read that one because I remember the sequel of Brother of the More Famous Jack very well um the Traveling Hall player? Yes, exactly. I was about to say trumpet player. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if I've read things. that one. So I will, I'm, I'm going to go away and well, do that this I afternoon. I think the eponymous Noah, I believe, becomes her lover. And he's quite sexy and he's quite bossy in the way that, because I do, um, let me see if I can get my Goldman's the right way round. Um, the, the, Roger mm-hmm. is... We don't like Roger. Everyone loves Jonathan. Yeah. Um, Barbara Trapido, to do my name dropping once more, also told me that there's a... I can't remember if it's in The Travelling Horn Player or a different book where um, Jonathan and Catherine sort of turn up. But not to... The spoiler alert, skip past the next few minutes if you don't want to know things that happen in books. Um, there is um, infidelity mm-hmm. and that it's... She thinks that people aren't upset that he was unfaithful to Catherine. People are upset that he was unfaithful to Catherine and not with them. 
Oh, I see. Oh, that's fascinating because I did feel like my heart had been smashed with a hammer when Jonathan did that. But same with the fifth book in the Cazalet Chronicle mm. series. Have you read those? Yes, they okay. were my lockdown books. Yes, so mine as well. That was the only fiction I come, I could come to and I didn't know how I hadn't ever heard of them until then because that was like reading those was like arriving at a party and realizing your friends were all already mm-hmm. there because everybody that I adore sort of you know from the Indianites to the Esther Freud's have then spoken about them mm-hmm. and you know once you are attuned to it there's this whole conversation going on about those novels which I'd never ever ever heard of before and it gets quite because for years people had been saying and I'd really felt like look yes I know I'll get to it I felt quite I don't you know when there's sort of a, a restaurant or everyone's like look you absolutely yeah and you actually decide to resist it, it because it yeah it invokes the sort of odd rebellion in me that I don't know yeah, what it doesn't like do me and never favors. having watched the Star Wars films and now it's become a you know pillar of my personality that I haven't seen them and I've refused to ever see them I've never seen the Star Wars films. There you go. And um, I can't even watch um, Star Wars Family Guy because I just feel so bored. Like, I want to engage. Yeah. I feel Isn't like that there's... funny? And I'm sure they're brilliant, but I'm just like, it's become too much of a talking point for me in social situations to be like, I've never seen Star Wars. So, it's funny, I'll have to resist forever. <laughs> it was the Venn diagrams of like, yeah, brother of the more famous Jack and no Star Wars. Yes, Sarah. I wonder what how an enormous crossover with the Cazalets in the middle. Yes, there must be some of us <laughs> in that circle. It is extraordinary, I think, the way she writes the characters, and you sort of don't care what happens to the characters because you love them. And I think a lot about Zoe, who mm-hmm. we meet as a monster, and mm-hmm. how she softens and how she evolves. I adored she was absolutely one of my favorites I thought it was she was so intriguing and the arc that she went through she was definitely I think to me the one that because it's a sort of almost an ensemble piece and you come in and out of sections about each character every time Zoe walked on I was so thrilled because she was so alive and vibrant but so sad and sort of lost in this enormous family there's something clearly it's a similar theme in Trapeda that you've got this enormous loud close mad sort of family with a very strong culture of its own and then this outsider comes in and observes them and feels both included and excluded from their family and culture. nancy mitford too and fanny on of the course also maybe cousin. that's the genre of books i like can your mm. can your listeners write in and suggest others that fit into that exact theme that would be really good. Have you read um, Noel Stratfield and her Gemma books? I have not because that would have fallen into the period of time when I didn't read, age-wise, I think. Because, I, I mean, oh my goodness me, Ballet Shoes is um, the weird, um, actually, to sort of reveal too much, the thing, the book I'm trying to write at the moment maybe has an element of that in that it's there's some sort of a little bit of performance and it's about courting attention and seeking attention and I was as a very ungainly and not very um (laughs) talented theatre kid but I think what I love about those Stratfield books in the 30s is they're set in the glamorous world of the stage but they're also like the family's broke and we're relying on the 14 year old to go and be in a panto and make six shillings a week yes Um, and slightly later Gemma is um an American child star and her mum's a movie star and she just becomes a little bit too old to sort of get roles anymore. And she's sent to live with her aunt, her mum's sister and her family. And those three kids are very sort of musical and theatrical, but in yeah. a slightly more earnest, pious way. And there's Anne, the eldest, who's this 
stunning singer but quite dull and quite sensible and there's Robin who's a sort of eight-year-old child prodigy who likes basically I think Robin invents the concept of the remix and Lydia in the middle yeah the ballet dancer and Gemma as the cousin but also for various reasons because her mum is so famous they've got to kind of keep her identity secret and then she's sort of outed because she's cast in the lead of the school play about Lady Jane Grey this is that this is how I know about who Lady Jane yeah, Grey is, yeah. I'd never know otherwise. That family dynamic, theatrical families. Yeah. And plus I love the I love the sort of the stray. And actually mm. I realise now thinking about Sarah and Bliss that it's not entirely I mean, clearly that those have been my influences because you have Martha's husband, Patrick, mm. who arrives in the family as a boarding school yeah. stray friend of, you know, her cousin and then he becomes part of the furniture but never quite feels you know that his place there is fully secure mm. you know he has to work for it in a way that the real members of the family don't so it's a genre we just need to think of a name for it when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back with Meg soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen High Wages by Dorothy Whipple, which is published by Persephone. It's the story of Jane, an ambitious teenage shop girl who uses her talent, spirit and tenacity to do something truly audacious. This was first published in 1930, but it's a fresh, funny, contemporary delight. It's Brief Encounter meets the secret dream world of a shopaholic. I loved it. It put me in a really good mood for days afterwards. High Wages by Dorothy Whipple is published by Persephone and out now. Now, back to Meg. I just read, um, again, a little bit like um, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, a book I never thought I'd ever read or ever want to read. Um, And it's really, really famous. And it's by Han Yang Hara. And it's called A Little Life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Couldn't personally get through it. Like, incredibly written, but it was just too confronting for me for some reason I now don't remember but I just remember feeling I want to read this but I can't I think because I was so so reluctant to read it and the more I heard about it and the more people talked about it and people have talked about it on this podcast and how much I loved it I'm like yes it sounds wonderful and not said look this is 
I, I just don't think I want to put myself yeah. through this. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. And there was just so much more lightness in it than I was expecting there to be. And that really, really startled me. But that I think that it's a book about how we seek to we think we seek love what we really 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 want is to be understood and that is the rarest thing in the world but love Gosh, that's is so much more common yeah than what think. a thesis that's incredible it's funny isn't it because what you're told in advance of a book and the way it really mm. colors your perception going in or you're looking at it through mm. this lens I think is why as an author I really struggle with trigger warnings mm. because you know and I'm a generation above the generation who invented and you know requires trigger warnings um so I don't you know I'm not a native to them and I I can sort of um you know we read crime and punishment with no trigger warning that someone's going to get an axe through their head that's just if you got to that part and it was too much you just stopped reading so I see the benefit of you know for vulnerable readers I can see how that's really important but at the same time, you know, I'm not on Instagram, but when I've sort of checked in to see what the conversation might be around Zoran Bliss, often it will sort of before the post that is entirely complimentary and we'll mm. talk about the humour, the trigger warning says suicide, miscarriage, domestic violence, and it's an enormous obstacle. I mean, it makes me feel like how on earth as an author am I going to get you past that mm. now to not go in thinking, oh, I'm reading a book about suicide or to not read it at all. But I think as a reader, why that that I struggle with that is because I would look at that and think, I don't want to read about that. Yeah. But at the same time, there might be something in it for me, the way that it's managed or the the resolution to it or what the real story is or the observations mm. that the truth's in it. I won't find them because, you know because it's put me off in advance I do I do really struggle and I think as readers we're braver and more astute mm, than we're sort of being yeah. almost made out to be and we have the option to stop exactly I've read I won't say what it is because I was really uh, I did not enjoy it, but a, a book a little while ago in pre-form and it's one of those books where I didn't enjoy it mm -hmm. and I almost felt like for the first time ever I wanted some kind of a trigger warning because it just made me feel so low mm -hmm. afterwards and mm -hmm. it wasn't the subject matter mm. which was dark it was just the the handling of it the and it felt so it, yeah. sort of relentlessly so I don't know heavy and yeah it was just a book where I came away with it. I've got five younger sisters and I love sharing books with them and I thought because normally I, would, I was like, I really, really desperately want to find something nice mm -hmm. to say. But I thought, I feel like if I gave this book to someone who's feeling a little bit vulnerable or a little bit wobbly, yeah. they might feel even more vulnerable. Yeah. And yet, you know, as you say, when you think of other sort of moments in, there are so many things in literature that are just so dark yeah and that you can read yeah well because it's how it's handled isn't feel, it yeah and it's who the character is and who the interpret who which characters what they're like in the way that they interact with it so a book for me that was like that and I it was my dark Vanessa I just it's not so much that I couldn't manage the idea of a teacher-student sort of relationship mm -hmm. but I couldn't it, it made me feel exactly the same I just felt and this is separate to how it's written and the, mm -hmm. the value of it as literature I just felt uh, squeamish it, yeah. or kind of you wanted to go and have a shower or something mm. afterwards. You know, it's a, I just couldn't, the character didn't make me feel safe in what we were exploring yeah. or something like that. So I think it, it really is quite individual in the way Gosh, it's done. It's so interesting because that is a book that I really, really loved 
and I thought it was really absorbing, really how fascinating. I thought it was really skillful how, as she was writing about herself as an adult, well, you know, fiction, yeah. that character. The premise was incredible. Still couldn't yeah. reframe the relationship yeah. as abuse, and I think it made me really aware of the way we're unreliable narrators in their own lives saying everything's not I think that's the most powerful mm. thing but I have so many people who love the books I love um who, you know we sort of share lots and share mm-hmm. they said the same thing to me about that book that they yeah. really struggled with it but then are you do you sort of do you wish you'd never picked it up <laughs> yes I think I do because there are images in it that I can't scrub out of my mind mm. and I'm 44 and I'm very tough and you know I, I'm not sort of um vulnerable in any way around that subject matter but I just I just would have rather not read it you know and again nothing to do with the quality of yeah. it as writing or you know because all of that was amazing um but yeah there are books like that that just sort of get a bit of a hook into your mind mm. and you can't quite unhook it but generally speaking as well, I, I think I do, as a reader, require some hope mm. and some joy. Yeah. And there is that very particular, and this is not to do with that book particular, but there's a female protagonist who is bitter and jaded and who stays bitter and jaded. And I think I need to have some reason to travel with her to see her change and to develop a different perception, that very dry kind of you know I don't know if you remember Sweet Bitter but it's sort of in that that realm of that particular woman that I just I just think yes but then what happens because we Mm. don't stay like that I think as humans we have we have a survival instinct and we want life to be better so when I see a a, I don't know why it's a female protagonist in particular I think probably because you know it's just how I relate to it but seeing her not want to change her circumstances that doesn't feel real to yeah. me I see all of us striving to to get to the next thing and to be happier and mm. to be you know so that's that's a particular protagonist that I would trigger warning myself as trigger warning tedious <laughs> jaded yeah and I was gonna say because again I'm sure you've heard this a billion times before but what is so brilliant about Martha is in an era where I'm struggling in this t- the era of the unlikable heroine yeah. because I think there's such a massive difference between being flawed and being unlikable and yet you've got to have someone who wants to and I think it is because Martha wants to see the absurd and notices things and looks for hope and looks for connection outside herself and I think there is lots of stuff now it's like, oh unlikable women that's very fashionable like, yeah but if bit- I wrote my friends into characters we would all be unlikable too I mm. just don't know what that means when a reader says that do you want to be would you want to imagine them as your friend? Do you did you do you want to be the protagonist and therefore you don't want to be that protagonist so it makes her unlikable? I just I truly need that term to be sort of defined mm. by everybody who uses it. Because to me the only crime in a protagonist is to be boring. Mm. I can put up with anything as long as there is some sort of, I guess, charisma or interest to that character and some complexity. Um because, yeah, I interviewed Lionel Shriver once and she's obviously accused of that all the time. And she said, but what do they mean? Do they want my characters to be giving blood and adopting rescue cats the whole <laughs> way through? There's no interest in that. There's nothing to be said about good people. Um, did you read My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Mushroom? No, I didn't. And I'm so glad because only because sometimes 
you know, Sarah Ambliss is likened to it. So uh, any book that's likened to it, I want to have not read in case I plagiarised it. So I definitely didn't plagiarise it. It's safe now. I love that book. And I'm in the middle of a book I'm really enjoying, which I think is coming out this week at the time of recording, The Dating Alone by Dawn Winter. And they both got the most thrillingly, I'm doing air quotes, unlikable protagonists. But, yeah. you know, I adored them both because they're people that you want to be with and spend time with and you want to Just know what they're doing and how they're yeah. thinking and there's yeah. a, a warmth to them and an acknowledgement of their flaws and their vulnerability and the sort of protagonists who do seem to have a sense of humor about themselves and a little bit of sense and of awareness, some awareness and a exactly. capacity for evolution yeah and I wanted to come back to you about Emma um because I think that might be one of the first books I remember reading and maybe more... Oh, put that pos- in the Venn diagram. Definitely. <laughs> and maybe not so... More than any other Austin heroine, like Emma, it's about her evolution and her Absolutely. becoming... Absolutely. Bottoming out with the Box Hill, mm. being rude to Mrs Bates and then coming and then, back together again. And, and, and she survives of, being cancelled. Exactly, she does. And, she's, and she sort of repents and she tries to change. And I think... You know, once when I was struggling with the the new novel that became Sorrow and Bliss, my publisher said to me, all that you need to do is, you know, every novel should be somebody wants something and they change in the attempt to get it, Mm. whether they actually do get it. They change in some way. You can't leave a person static and show no evolution. And that's what Emma wants. I mean, you know, that's what she does is she's changed by the end and sometimes the thing that the person might want changes as well mm. but there's got to be that sort of arc and that's perfectly perfectly realized in Emma isn't it because I, I mean I love all of Austin but I do think that even Pride and Prejudice you know what they want mm-hmm. not totally I mean there I think that there are some changes and everyone maybe becomes a little bit more themselves mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want that bit to be any different but you do feel like you know Lizzie is as good on the last page as she is on the first and to see someone but and also I think what's so great about Emma and it's also if you're at Rachel's Holiday by Marion Keys I haven't recent anniversary yes I think you would love it okay it's the perfect mix of dark and light and Rachel is a lot like Emma in that she thinks she's fine she goes in and she's living in New York and living her best life and she loves to party and when her when she has an overdose and her family want to pack her off to rehab she yeah. thinks oh no this is nonsense you're all like Irish and parochial and yeah. you think that just because I do a little bit of cocaine I'm a terrible addict this is just strawberry yeah. baby but oh sure I'll go to rehab there'll be a spa and I'll meet celebrities and it'll be like a holiday and she thinks she knows herself and she's been yeah. lying and lying and lying to herself and she goes to rehab and she learns has to face she some is. truths yeah and, and a coming of age in that way and it's so brilliantly brilliantly funny and some of the best bits I think about all the time are when her mum and dad come to visit her in rehab and they're sort of surrounded by all the other inmates mm-hmm. and the way as well and her being quite scornful initially of all the people that she's in with and then the tenderness that comes as she gets to know mm-hmm. these people she's just written a sequel as well but oh, yes. honestly I think it might be the next, one of my yeah. three favorite or five favorite books but it's okay. such a it's a kind of it's it's modern Emma gosh so I we'll feel like every go out and buy it this afternoon as well please do every one of these ends up with me talking about Rachel's holiday for 20 minutes that's fine it's it's your trapedo as well that's I can't I always feel I mean, slightly bad when, too. yeah exactly but when you know you get asked to do this sort of what are the, your 
five favorite books or five books that you recommend for summer and I'm like I just I'm going to talk about Trapedo again I can't help it I, can't I think it's myself. very good to have a, a personal brand in these yeah. times <laughs> are there any other novels that you have found really useful or moving or inspiring specifically in reference to the way they discuss mental health I think that what's probably informed my understanding of it the most and my interest in it is Owls Do Cry, which is by Janet Frame, who's a New Zealand novelist, who's absolutely enormous figure there and generally in the Antipodes, but hasn't, I don't think, got quite the deserved readership here. And she has the most extraordinary autobiography, and Owls Do Cry has got autobiographical elements in it. So she was born early, sort of maybe 20s or 30s, to a family her father was in the railways and they used to travel all around the south island of new zealand but very poor she talks about um she's got an incredible actual um series of autobiography series of memoir three-part memoir called the angel at my table which jane campion made into a film a long time ago so that's her so she had a wild head of red hair and she you know talks about the house they lived in at some stage she would wake up with snow on her blankets because you know there was an enormous hole in the ceiling but anyway in her real life she had five siblings two of them died in tragic circumstances and by the time she was 21 she was having what would then have been described as a sort of nervous breakdown she was committed to somewhere called the sea cliff lunatic asylum in the deepest south island of new zealand which is a very cold very rugged place victorian institution involuntarily where she was given something like 200 rounds of ECT and was down to have a lobotomy she was scheduled to have a lobotomy and she had written a short story in the hospital and she'd mailed it to the outside world for a competition and she won the short story competition and the doctors decided that maybe she wasn't mad she was just artistic and they let her go and she came to London where the diagnosis that she had of schizophrenia was overturned and she became a novelist from there and I had read that book in university and been completely obsessed with it because also it's set in New Zealand which you don't get a lot of that Mm. and it's got that deep resonance of home and you know all the references the birds and the rivers and all of those things and then I came back to it just after I finished Sarambles I don't know why I picked it up again and I just thought oh this is where all my concerns have been taken from you know madness and home and um beauty and sort of landscape and and I could see it was all there and she was also she's acknowledged to be sort of one of the first writers after you know she's the she's the sort of antithesis Virginia Woolf writing about as it is madness um from the female perspective and the female on the inside not as the observer so she just she's another one that I am constantly trying to you know to make sure people read Owls Do Cry it's quite magical it's moves between the quotidian and the fantastic but in the most sublime way I'm going to read that immediately (laughs) after I read Grief as a Thing with Feathers Mm -hmm. which I'm going to do before I go to sleep tonight that sounds extraordinary and parts of that story maybe it's from the film or the things that sort of ring some, vague yeah bells, but it just gosh imagine you know story saved her life That's yes exactly and you incredible. sort of think and she actually i've discovered on this recent read because i knew that she lived in the town where i lived in new zealand which was a town called palmerston north very small provincial town and 
all we knew as teenagers that there was a quote mad writer who lived in town she had red hair that's all we knew about her and we used to bicycle past her house although i didn't know it at the time and she also before that used to live in a much smaller town called levin which is where my grandmother lived and so i looked at it when i discovered that and realized that i would have walked past that house all the time when i was sent down to the bakery to get bread and she she was quite eccentric and she was so averse to noise she used to wear lawn mowing headphones oh she wow wrote. like ear defenders exactly and she had double bricked her house she'd put a layer of bricks around her own house and I just when I found that I was like I wonder if I saw her I wonder if I you know saw her and didn't know who I was looking at or yanked her flowers out of the garden as I walked past which was we were allowed to do and I just think how extraordinary and to write in such an experimental way that was so radical when she did it from a tiny provincial town in New Zealand. I mean, to invent the genre that she invented, I just endlessly, you know, in awe of how she did that and to not care about who her reader was, you know, or to have a mind to an audience because you could not have done that. You know, she just created something new and it was who she was. It's the same thing. It was just who she was. Gosh, I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm thinking about how sensitive this person must have been and how perceptive and how much world you're seeing if you mm-hmm. need to protect yourself out. and also the way that maybe this isn't fair and I'm just being a big angry feminist but that men are allowed to be sensitive and no one calls it sensitivity it's, it's well they don't keep them to silence space. probably yeah whereas if you're just not putting up with everything relentlessly then yeah it's like a, um you you just you cannot write for everyone and yeah. you need to well, of course, double not, break your house and put the ear defenders on. Yeah, one and people, something that some person loves, the other person will hate. So you can't think about it because you'll never make everyone happy. And by trying to, you'll make no one happy, mm. I think is sort of the rule you do. I mean, it's such a cliche and it's so hard to consciously do, but you have to write the book that you want to read and consider yourself your reader. And one of, one of the other pieces of advice that I hold very dear is... I've, you know, it's extraordinary that through Sorumbliss again, I've got to know Anne Patchett very well. I know, and I was talking to her once about how hard I was finding it, and how, you know, I felt all this expectation and pressure after Sorumbliss, and she went, "Just remember, it's very important to remember as you're doing this that it's literary fiction, and no one gives a shit." <laughs> and I was like, and she's like, "You could shove Margaret Atwood out on the street, you know, sort of literary voice of a generation, no one better working in the English language." 99% of the people walking past would have no idea who she was. So we take ourselves very seriously, but it's like, we're just telling stories. We're just telling stories. That's, you know, I mean, when it's everything you want to do and it's the most important part of your own life as a person, it does feel desperately important, but it's just literary fiction. <laughs> just literary fiction is such a good, it's, it's only a book. We're not surgeons. No one's going to die. I just read um, her essays. They're called This is a Story of a Happy Marriage. Oh, yes. The previous and, one the, from 10 years or so ago. Incredible. Yeah. And I can't, I, I don't know how I missed that, but I did miss it. But I'm so glad to discover it now. And the very last one about her friend who's a nun mm-hmm. and having to explain. Sister Nina. Sis, yes. And having to explain to Sister Nina like, the difference between credit cards and debit cards and the fact that sister nina was so profoundly wise about so many huge things but was sort of living alone for the first time and there was something about that that just it made me yeah weep for a day yeah the one that was a revelation to me was in these precious days which is the new collection um there are no children here mm. was astonishing because you know she's obviously writing about her experience of being someone who didn't want children didn't have children and had to put up with inquiry about that for sort of her entire 
reproductive life. Um, and I was the opposite because I did have children and I had them very young and had to put up with comments on that and people's perceptions on that. But there's a part at the end of that essay where she realizes that it was always small talk and it felt like a massive judgment and an indictment mm. and an interrogation and a judgment. People were just they'd done the weather and then they moved on to why didn't you have children and for me it was they moved on to oh you had children very young and there was some sort of almost healing I think for that in that for me that I just realized that no one cared as much as it felt like when they were delivering their sort of summary verdict on the way that I'd chosen to live oh my goodness that's pretty much all of Anne Patchett isn't it Mm -hmm. and it's something that I need to be reminded of every hour every day no one really cares that much and that's wonderful that's the good news there's freedom in it we can all relax slightly that everyone's only thinking about themselves I feel like we could do another hour on Anne Patchett and then Mm -hmm. another bonus hour on Barbara yeah Um, but uh, Meg I have to ask you I'd love to know if there's anything that you're really looking forward to book wise or anything that's on your pile I have just finished reading One Day I Shall Astonish the World, the brand new Nina Stibby, um, which I will basically buy an industrial palette of them and just hand them out to everybody that I know. She's extraordinary and she's just, her books, I already love them, but this one is, this is sort of feels like peak Stibby. It's just everything. It's just everything. This sort of four jokes per line I mean it's just astonishing I've completely loved that without giving too much away I was so astonished by how brilliantly she had written about the pandemic and Mm -hmm. I was like no I don't want to read any pandemic books no one tried and the way she had got the beginning of this period yeah and brought it up to now and it's a decision we're all as writers going to have to make because unless we Mm -hmm. want to set our books you know and stop them at 2018 we'll have to address it somehow and they're just starting to come through now aren't they like I loved last year the second place by Rachel Kask she had acknowledged it obliquely and I thought that was a really clever way to do it she just sort of talks about this situation that's happening and we all know what it is but I don't you know I do think my appetite for COVID related books will be quite limited for Mm. quite a long time just feels too much like a busman's holiday still but I think for contemporary fiction it's going to have to be addressed I'm so glad that you love Nina's book because she's a um, friend of the podcast and Mm -hmm. of me and I think she's wonderful so hooray for that um the canon we've discussed the canon (laughs) funny women a book coming this year by a writer I love Aisha Malik and she's written a few brilliant books and I think this is her best one yet it's called The Movement and it's this really beautiful funny moving satire and a satire with depth Aisha's fantastic and I love this book so much excellent I feel like I need to go back and listen to this podcast myself to write down all of the books we discussed (laughs) show notes we'll we'll, we'll send you a list thank you I look forward to receiving it it's been such a joy to speak with you thank you so much for coming on I've had the loveliest time such a pleasure I can't think of a nicer way to spend an hour of the day thank you huge thanks to Meg The Women's Prize shortlisted Sorrow and Bliss is out now in paperback and so is Meg's excellent first novel, Ubi Mother. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends and thanks so much to everyone who has left a five-star review. Please do keep them coming. It helps other people to discover us and new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Meg on acast.com forward slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop at bookshop.org. Link in the show notes. We'll be back soon with more book chat, but for now, I leave you with this from Nina Stibby. There's always a lot of autobiography in fiction and fiction in autobiography. 
It has to be that way, otherwise they'd be unreadable, except by the author. See you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 